1: the grape Nation your weekly wine journey. We are broadcasting live from the Heritage Radio Network TP at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival in Charleston South Carolina. We have a distinguished panel of guests our guests are Eric Asimov Doug Flamer. Doug did I get that right I... Flemmer. Doug Flemmer and Courtney, Courtney Maley. Doug is the proprietor of Ingleside Vineyards, one of Virginia's oldest and largest wineries. Ingleside makes over 18 types of award-winning wines from estate-grown grapes. Doug has also shaped, helped shape um, the wine industry in Virginia. He's the past president of the Virginia Wineries Association and a bunch of other important organizations. Courtney Maley is the founder of Blue Bee Cider, Richmond, Virginia's first urban cidery. Courtney left the corporate world. I guess you threw your arms up and said, that's it. And she started Floopy 2012, 2013. Okay. And we also have Eric Asimov. Eric Asimov is a friend to Heritage Radio and has appeared on a bunch of shows. Eric is the chief wine critic of the New York Times. His columns appear weekly as The Poor. Eric recently published a couple of books, How to Love Wine, a memoir and manifesto and Wine with Food, pairing notes and recipes from the New York Times. Those books, of course, are available on Amazon and at uh, all booksellers. So I wanna thank everyone for joining us, Doug, Eric, Courtney, um, welcome to the show. So let me get started with uh, Doug and Courtney. So I guess the festival goes out of their way to feature and highlight Virginia winemakers. You know, there's enough beer and wine and liquor but amongst that, you know, is Virginian Geographically, you know, we're not that far away. Um, so,
2: you've been coming here how long, Doug? I mean, we've been down. I think this is our sixth year. Okay. Um, ever since the Virginia Wine Marketing Office decided that Charleston was a good place good for market. us to go,
1: right? And Doug. You're sort of like the OG of Virginia Wines. You know what that is?
2: Uh, no, I don't.
1: <laughs> All right. shall I tell him, Eric? OG is original gangster. Oh. That's the guy that was I think there first. you have first. to tell me, too. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guy that was there first, did it, still doing it, and everybody looks up to him. And, you know, you, you've sort of earned that designation. Now, Courtney, on the other hand, Courtney is sort of part of the new breed. Courtney, you, just quickly, you worked in the corporate world. yes in finance
3: economic development
1: economic development and something drove you to throw your arms up and say I'm not doing this anymore
3: yes well and I I knew that pretty much the first month that I started working in the corporate world but I had some student loans to work my way through before I could give it all up
1: right and I know you come from a wine family
3: my uncle is one of the founders of Walla Walla Vintners in Washington. Right, in Washington, in Washington
1: State. Mm-hmm. So fermenting stuff or you know, bottling stuff mm-hmm. wasn't foreign to you. But when did you hatch the idea that you would leave and start a cidery?
3: Well, I, I was about to turn 40, so a seminal birthday, and I decided it was time to stop doing what I didn't want to do anymore and start doing what I did want to do. And I actually had a conversation with Uncle Miles the summer before I threw it all into the air, and I knew that I didn't want to make reds, because he was doing really right. well with that, and Virginia already had a lot of whites, so what kind of a wine are you going to make if you're not going to make reds or whites? And Ultimately, I chose cider, which is a wine, but it's made with apples instead right. of grapes.
1: And we'll talk about that in a minute. Yep. But you did something interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, when you think of cideries, you know, they're upstate New York, they're in Vermont, they're in Washington. You mm-hmm. decided to open a cidery pretty much in and around downtown Richmond, right? Yes. So you're growing some grapes and contracting some grapes?
3: Well, Apples. Apples. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's okay. That's I'm okay. So around um,
1: grapes too much. When I
3: was apprenticing out in the western part of the state and started looking at places to set up a cidery, and it was time to make a decision, I said, "Husband, let's move west." And he said, "No, let's not. My job is here." So I needed to try, at least try, to find a way to make the business model work where we brought the raw materials down the mountain right. and made it in the city.
1: You wanted to be closer to the market. Yes. I mean, where you serve and hold the cider, you were right there. Exactly right. So it turned out
3: to be a really good decision.
1: Right. And Doug, you're sort of the opposite. I mean, you've been been on that property way back before the 80s. I mean, why and how did you get started quickly?
2: Yeah, well, we have quite a family history on the property where we are. Um, Been there since 1890, my family. Not me personally, but um and i'm actually second generation i was gonna say you look good <laughs> well, my father had the idea to start a, a winery in virginia and this was in the late 70s when there were four, five, six wineries uh we started uh officially in 1980 there were eight wineries i think now they're up to 280 some so it's been quite a growth but um although my dad had the idea he enlisted me to, to do the grunt work and so I've been there from the beginning and loving it. I even met my wife at a wine event uh, so I feel like I'm pretty much a, a wine geek all the way through. So the family
1: the family had property. Yes. I mean you hit the ground running. Yes. There were vines to plant, vines planted yes. already around there. Well we
2: planted, my dad planted vines and then they grew well. We made some home wine. People were clamoring to get that homemade wine. We said, well, what could we do if we really set up and did it as a business and things just took off from there. Wow.
1: Um, let's talk about, I think, you know, Eric talks a lot about in columns and in books about terroir, you know, the place where wine is grown, the people that grow it. You hear a lot about the terroir, certainly in France. They talk about it in Napa. I mean, I'll be the first to tell you. I don't know the first thing about the terroir for apples or for grapes in Virginia. I don't, you know. Tell me about the terroir as far as growing grapes, Doug. You grow a ton of varieties. Yes. And Courtney, I know you're start. You use a lot of varieties, and you'll move towards that. But what are we talking about? Are we talking about soils that are easy to work with? Um, is it challenging? The weather window, I mean, just give me a quick snapshot into... Yeah,
2: Virginia, um, most people wouldn't suspect that that's the great place to grow grapes because of the climate. Uh, Soil's not so much an issue. Uh, There are all types of soil conditions in Virginia throughout the state. Um, Grapes uh, can adapt to that pretty well, but it's the microclimate where you're planting and then varietals... Uh, and, of course, now we know clones and rootstocks are important to where you're actually located. And Virginia is young. We're still learning a lot, improving every year. So through year. the
1: years, you've done a yeah. lot of experimenting with which grapes yes. grow where. and
2: We've almost revamped our entire vineyard over the 39 years that we've been growing and making so wine. So,
1: I, I mean, this shows less than 40 minutes. So we don't have time, but tick off a few varieties that you grow and bottle. There's some interesting stuff in there. Yeah,
2: Virginia has still figuring out what they can do, but you'll find uh, the main ones now, of course, everybody's growing Cabernet, uh, Sauvignon, Merlot, uh, for whites, Chardonnay, you'll see. Uh, not so much Riesling, we're too hot. Okay, A uh, few microclimates, but... We've discovered other varieties from other regions, like Viognier has done very well. Really? Uh, nice aromatic uh, grape? Yes. Um, the latest thing that we're really excited about is Albariño, the Spanish grape. Uh, we're A featuring, white Spanish
1: grape? Yeah. Nice crisp grape.
2: It does well in the region of Spain that it uh, comes from, which is a little more humid and, and moist, uh, which Virginia certainly can claim to be in that category. So... Uh, it's, we're still finding out. We have Italian varieties, you know, that we're playing with. So there'll be a, a Portuguese varieties. You'll right. see a lot of different varieties, and different regions will sort of show those to different So
1: styles. Albarino is something you've been experimenting, growing, yes. and something you've added to the bullpen in the past yes. few years. I mean, obviously you're putting stuff on. Do you ever realize... Or find it's tough to grow grapes and just move away from that and replant?
2: Yes. You do yeah, that, too? We've abandoned some of what's, what's
1: been a tough haul as far as...
2: Well, we have Sangiovese, uh, the Italian grape. Not easy? Uh, not easy. doesn't okay. like wet, but we you know, end up making a lot of risotto out there of you that. Go.
1: That's a good, good way to put it to good use. Now, Courtney, you contract a lot of apples, well, but you have some property where you're growing... Yes. What are the plans? And
3: So and in terms of terroir, right. there are some apples that we grow in Virginia that are grown in other apple-growing regions around the country. Um, Pippin and winesap are two of the really key apples in Virginia. Um, Pippin is a very calcium-hungry apple, and the Shenandoah Valley has this huge lime deposit that washes through the whole valley. Well, so that's Pippin's good for that. grow really, really well there. Um, two more rare varieties that we're growing more of in Virginia now are Harrison and Hughes. And Blue Bee Cider is still the largest commercial producer of Harrison in the world. It used to be the most popular apple for cider at the end of the colonial era. And it's one of the varieties that we're bringing back from extinction.
1: So how many different apples are you dealing with variety-wise?
3: It really depends. It depends
1: on well, the so harvest. Apples are
3: very biennial. You. So... We'll have good years and bad years, and some years we'll have 16 to choose from, and some will have more or less. Because with
1: grapes, you know, the yield Mm -hmm. varies, the acidity and all that, Mm -hmm. but it's still that one grape, a Cabernet grape or whatever. Um, Eric, I thank you for coming by and sitting with us. my pleasure. I just wanted uh, you to tell everyone what brings you down to Charleston. You're doing a bunch of events at the festival, right? yeah
4: um, this is the the third festival that I've been to and it's always a, a, a pleasure to be here you know with a lot of um, the, these sorts of food and wine festivals are held all over the country and often they, they can seem rather generic because you're you're just parachuting a bunch of people into a, a place and they do their thing but it it has nothing to do with um, you know the culture of the region. But the the culture of Charleston is so um, strong and and indigenous that uh, people come here and adapt themselves to the the place. So the the place here has a lot of power to it, and I think that makes it a really um, worthy. Kind of festival. The festival magnifies that.
1: Yeah, they're very supportive of that.
4: So, um, I uh, this year I, I did a, uh, a wine dinner last night. We we chose some um, some really uh, interesting and esoteric wines to to go with a, a meal at Fig. And uh, tomorrow I'm going to do uh, two seminars: one on Cru Beaujolais and the other on. Um, sparkling wines beyond champagne right are you gonna even talk about champagne or go beyond and talk well about um, I included one champagne in the lineup just for um, comparison purposes okay but
1: um, more for reference
4: but you know there's so many different sparkling wines in the world and they are, are you can make them of of any different any kind of grape. Um, there are a number of different methods, including a, a an ancient one that's been resurrected and has become quite popular, uh, Pétillon Naturel, it's right. called now. a
1: once-fermented, sparkling, natural wine. Right. Right.
4: And, um, you know, if, if you—I wouldn't be surprised if Doug makes a sparkling Doug wine. Doug does, um, and has
1: been for a while, right? You know, it, it's— And then you're sparkling.
4: Yeah, Um so, you know, when you, when you travel around the world and you visit wine producers um, very often, um, you know, winemakers are, are like chefs. They're always uh, experimenting and, and trying different things. So, you know, you, you'll go visit a guy in Bordeaux, but he makes a little sparkling wine for himself because it's fun. Hey
1: Eric, come here and taste this. Yeah. You know, I got two barrels.
4: Right, that's fun. So um, you know, it's interesting, and and it's I think it's um, worth exploring what else is available well, beyond the familiar. Well, let's tick
1: off a few things in the sparkling wine world. Let's tell people about three, four things. There's Cremant. There's from France, Franciacorta. Everybody knows Prosecco, Cava. Tell me some of the things, you know, that you're... Well,
4: uh, uh, Cava is an interesting example. Uh, Cava is the the sparkling wine from Spain, and we're most familiar with it in this country in the sort of uh, very cheap, mass-produced bottles that uh, back when I was a college student, you... You bought the bottle to get drunk, and then you had a candlestick for the rest of your right. life.
1: Nice candle and, holder.
4: And uh, now, nowadays, uh, you're not allowed to burn a candle in a college dorm anymore, I'm right. told. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, in the in the last few years, we've uh, seen some uh, really super serious kava producers who are not just, um, you know, rolling out millions of bottles, but are taking... Great care in their vineyard um, because they've got a, a set of grapes that are uh, the main ones. Zorello is virtually grown nowhere else in the world. Right, and you know there was a a time when um, Kava producers were replacing Zorello with. With pinot noir and champagne and chardonnay in, in imitation of champagne, but um, the best ones are now emphasizing their own indigenous indigenous varieties. grapes. Right, and, and of course, cava is made with the champagne method. So, if you put a lot of care into it, you can make a, a really um, good sparkling wine and uh, show off the the qualities of these grapes and this. Uh, Land and so I found some really interesting cava's
1: and and uh, so let's get specific for a second because there's some good mass market cava's that are not a bad value for low teens 12, yes. 13. I think you're talking about a little more artisanal but not that much more but even you know give some me of the a, mass market give me a market. maker or
4: two um, uh, Raventos Eblanc uh, excellent Cremona. Uh, Recuerdo uh, and retail. We're talking. Well, they can go anywhere from you know fifteen or twenty dollars for the the. Um, the entry-level entry level. wine, and but you also see some, you know, you can find some cavas that go into the three figures because of, um, right. you know, those are made in very small quantities and you have to be really a, a you know, a cava uh, aficionado right. to, to check those out. But, you know, it goes way beyond... Right, but um, there's a
1: lot of good product yes, in the yeah, entry yeah. and right above that yeah, for sparkling wine um, with the same experience. I want to jump to... In, Go, no, finish your thought.
4: No, it just to say we'll also be tasting in this seminar. Um, uh, we'll be doing a, a Chocolina from Spain, uh, from the Basque Spell country. that for
1: everybody. Uh, Can you? <laughs> I, maybe I say, oh, yeah, but man. it starts well, with an X, right? you know, right?
4: luckily there's a number of ways of, of spelling it and, and of pronouncing it, so it, it depends which so way, way you go. So it's called Chocolina, it yeah, starts T- with a... T-X-A-K-O-L-I-N-A is the Basque right. version, um, we'll also have a uh, really good Lambrusco from uh, from Italy. That's another a very fun kind wine. of wine that was um, you know despised and discarded, but but now we're getting really good um, kind of farmhouse uh, varieties of, of of Lambrusco that are wonderful. Um, we'll have a, a Petion Naturel. We'll have. Uh, I think
1: it's an underappreciated wine. It's great with pizza and other yeah. food. Yeah. I think if you bring it. To a dinner or serve it to friends. They're like, what is this? You know, right. and there's some crappy stuff. But again, you know, there's some good entry level and some good makers. So, Chocolina, Lambrusco, Cava, little champagne you mentioned. Give me one yeah, other we'll one. Yeah, we'll have, we have a, a Petillon Naturel and, Pet Nat. and a sparkling Vouvray. Vouvray from... The Loire. the Loire Valley, Is yeah. that a Chenin-based wine? The that bourgeois? is a, a entirely Chenin-based. based That's something people should look out to. Um, I want to jump quick, quickly to Cru Beaujolais, which you're doing a tasting. I, I don't know if it's me, but all of a sudden it's like my favorite wine. It's delicious. The price is incredible. It's a great food-friendly wine. I, I'm, I'm saying everything you should be saying. Um, there's some terrific makers... What is it about Crew Beaujolais now? Are, are they getting their recognition? Is it well, better Well,
4: it's a, a, a number of things. Um, you know, if you looked at, at the Beaujolais region 15 years ago, it was in um, serious crisis. And the major reason for that was the, um, the worldwide popularity of Beaujolais Nouveau. That if Thanksgiving,
1: you, crappy if you remember grape this, uh,
4: this uh, Beaujolais Nouveau f- phenomenon, uh, you know from the 1970s, this was a a, a harvest, a local harvest treat. Um, after after the harvest came in, the um, there would be a big party for the winemakers and all, all the people, and they would drink some of the local wine from the harvest, and it would just be a newly formed. You know, on the cusp of being juice. And, and you know, it's just a joyous tradition. Uh, Georges Dubuff primarily transformed that into a worldwide phenomenon by mass producing this wine. And the compromises r- required um, in the mass production, uh, buying, buying grapes before they were actually ripe. Um, manipulate capitalizing manipulating them in the wine everything you shouldn't uh, do in uh, wine Virtually pasteurizing right. the wines and shipping them all over the world but it was big bucks and a lot of um, farmers adopted their uh, their work to to serving uh, this market and then when that market crashed and died pretty much everywhere in the world except for Japan um, these guys were left with nothing Um you know, meanwhile, the the reputation of Beaujolais was of this just uh, simple, you know, kind of knock it back wine, which is which is fine, and Beaujolais does that wonderfully. But it can also be a more serious wine, and um, especially when you when you get grapes from the best terroirs in the um, the ten crew regions right. in the north. Let's
1: remind people, Beaujolais Burgundy.
4: Yeah. And those are, are, you know, somewhat familiar names like Moulin-Avon, Morgon, uh, Fleury, uh, Julienas. And um, these grapes, which are grown in uh, uh, granite, and if if you're very careful with the uh, farming and with the winemaking, they are not uh, simply um, simple, joyous wines. They're actually quite complex, and they can be age-worthy, which is another... um, you know the cliche is drink it within a year or whatever, and right. and those wines are fine when when they're young, but they can really um, evolve and, and improve as well. So yeah, I think that's catching everyone's attention. Yeah, well um, you know people are discovering this, so prices are going up. So it's not quite the
1: the great I know. deal that unfortunately it to that be, always but, happens. And it, when when it starts making lists, yeah, people you know run to the list and all of that. Um, Doug and Courtney, I want to ask you about, you know, past vintage and all that. But I want to ask Eric first. We're not that deep into the year yet. So quickly, when we look back to 2017, is there any trend or thing or wine or something that, you know, happened that, you know, really resonated or, you know, got you thinking? Was there an event, a wine, a breakthrough?
4: Well, um... I don't know. One one way of answering that was that um, you know, we, we, 2017 was a year that uh, climate change really took a toll on on wine production, and uh, by climate change, I don't. Just mean global warming. I mean the fires. the extremes of, of weather. So yes, you had most obviously the uh, fires in in northern California, um, throughout France and, and much of um, Europe. You had uh, terrible early frosts in in the year, and uh, this is clearly a, a product of, of climate change. When you have uh, when when the climate is warmer and your um, your vines. Uh, uh you know go through bud break and flowering early and then it then it turns cold and this can uh, you know in some cases it it destroyed 100% of people's productions and so all over uh, uh, France in particular you're going to see production quite a bit lower and uh, in Bordeaux, in, in Champagne, Chablis, a, a bunch of other uh, places. And, of course, in, in Northern California, you've got the uh, potential residue from from the fires. It's right. that's not clear we yet. We haven't even
1: figured but, that
4: out. But um, I, I think the important thing is to realize that this is, this is just the beginning. And, um, well, what's you int- know, I mean, we're not, if we just don't, if we if we don't do anything about it, um, I don't know what we can do at this point anyway. But if we just like give it all up, um, you know, we have to be prepared for, for major changes in in you know.
1: I, I asked you the question, and it sort of alluded to. You know, what was the hot wine? What was the hot trend? <laughs> what was the hot region? You know, and and interestingly, you know, you gave a very important answer. Which affects, you know, everyone. Farmers, consumers, it, and all that. It does. If people don't yeah. get a sense of how global, you know, warming climate change is affecting a particular product, you know, they don't realize what's going on. And, and I guess you're right. You'll see it in crop yields, pricing, availability, and all of that stuff. So that that's a good point. Now, Doug, the past couple of years, um, harvest-wise,
2: weather-wise? Well, we're well prepared for... Uh, the changing of the global climate because Virginia experiences that every year. You know, warm spring, late frost, particularly uh, even with apples. I know Courtney has to suffer through every spring whether they're going to lose their crops. So we we get variable weather, and so we're pretty prepared for for that. Uh, So it's happening, but it's not... And every harvest is different. You know, the rains can come. Uh, Because we grow so many varieties, it it, uh, gives us a little bit of a a break that we, not all, everything in one basket. So usually something will come right at the optimum time each year so we can salvage a good harvest. Right. And what about with apples? I mean,
1: easier...
3: Apples have a longer period of bloom.
1: Less sensitivity, do you think? Well, so we have
3: early bloomers, regular and late bloomers, and the wine grapes tend to be more in a narrower window. So we have a little bit more, I guess, room to play. If the early bloomers get snapped, we'll have late bloomers.
1: Right. Um, Eric, I wanted to ask you, in your last article in The Poor this week, you talked about... Pomerol as a region, and you'll help me steer it. I I think I understood it, which is, you know, arguably one of the most famous regions for famous wines, Petrus and all of that. But I think what you got into was even regions like that, there are vignerons, winemakers that are making, you know, terrific wines that are not necessarily the most expensive. And, you, you know, I don't know if people look beyond the big guys so two questions I want you to talk a little more about that but is there a story like that you know in every region I mean I realize Bordeaux is sort of is there a story like that in Burgundy where there's the trophy guy but in the background
4: yeah um, I mean there's two parts to that question Um, you know every region has its kind of uh, famous um, Uh, leaders, emblematic producers, and and so on. And and, um, there are always people that are are, uh, relatively unknown or undiscovered. And, um, you know, it's great fun when you can find uh, people like that and and, uh, give their wine some exposure. But um, what particularly interested me in... in Pomerol was the contrast between the um, the usual formula in in Bordeaux, which um, you know is a a huge and important region, but in many in in terms of status with many. Um, Younger people, with many people in the uh, wine trade, sommeliers, and, and uh, so on, has kind of nosedived uh, in in, really? in this um, century because uh, the the emphasis in Bordeaux has uh, Bordeaux has eventually essentially become a luxury good in many people's eyes, and, and they've embraced the the um, the marketing uh, elements of it. And if you look at, at um, you know Champagne is a very, is a good analogy. Um, the the big houses in Champagne among the the, the cutting edge wine people have uh, become ca- kind of ignored because of their um, emphasis on the the marketing of wine over the uh, the agriculture of it, and so people. Um, American wine culture started looking at uh, Burgundy, and Burgundy, with its emphasis on small farmers, the importance of of terroir, uh, and this connotation of authenticity, kind of um, replaced Bordeaux in the American mindset as the the paradigm of what uh, wine production should be. And, um, you know, I, I have uh, uh, fought back against that a little bit by pointing out that uh, both Bordeaux has a, a, a history that can't be denied or dismissed, but also that um, there are vignerons, small farmers who make Bordeaux. Explain quickly what well. a vigneron is. A, a vigneron is a French term that doesn't really have an American translation. It's, it's the person who grows the grapes and transforms it into wine. And, and, Grower and maker, yeah, um, but it's almost like it's more. The connotation is more of a shepherd, right? You know, you're, of his you're, own land. Y- y- usually. Yeah, I mean, you're you're shepherding the grapes along in their journey to into through the to the bottle. Right. So it it you know winemaker has a little bit of a um, you know an industrial uh, suggestion to it. Your 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 right. Your good uh, point. Pro, your factory, but. Good point. Um, you know, so that, there are people like that in, in Bordeaux, and, and Pomerol especially, a uh, famous region. This is uh, the source of uh, Petrus and Lepin, and, you know, wine, wines that cost hundreds of dollars if you could uh, find them. Um, but it also... But all of these are small family estates. They have not become the sort of property of, of, of multinational corporations or uh, right. you know, luxury goods executives who who, who want to own a chateau somewhere. Um, and so there's a, you
1: Will know, they th- survive? I, I, I mean
4: I called it a a the burgundy of, of Bordeaux, right. which they, they don't really appreciate, but no. it, it captures the sense. Will it survive? Um you know, that's a really good question. Because they're not
1: marketing heavily. That's um, not where they're focusing. No,
4: and their land is super valuable. And what happens in in family estates in this situation, when you have to pass it on to a, a new generation, this is beginning to happen in Burgundy too, um, you know, unless you've prepared really well far in advance, you have uh, enormous amount of inheritance taxes to, to pay, and, and French law requires the property to be split among, you know, siblings, and you might have family members who just want to cash out. So it becomes very much of a uh, difficulty. And it's really, um, I mean, not to put it in, in political terms, but it's an income disparity issue. Right. When something uh, uh, is of great value, um, prices just rise to that to that level, and. You know, the people for whom money means very little are the ones who move in.
1: Yeah. So um, so that was this week's column. That was an interesting column. I mean, yeah. there's more insight if you obviously read the whole column. Um, we're going to wrap up in a couple of minutes. But before I let you go, I kind of enjoy a column you do every year. You go out pretty much on your own to retailers and you seek out the best bottles of wine for around $20. Yeah, I, We I, do a little feature on the show where we ask our guests, you know, what should we be drinking for that price range? Um, I got two takeaways from it. One, you know, there were some incredible recommendations. Some I knew about, a lot I didn't. But you make a point about buying wine in a price region that regardless, like 10 bucks or less, it's just going to be crap. Because how it's made, you got to kind of raise the bar a little and the experience is so much better and you know here's at least 20 examples talk yeah. to me a little about that
4: well you know it all it goes to uh price uh, uh it goes to the definition of value uh for me it's the the price quality ratio which in wine you know depending on where you live is somewhere from 15 to 25 dollars a bottle to you some people, can, that's expensive. Yes, absolutely. And then it, you know, it comes down to people's priorities in life. And I don't, I don't ever tell people what their priorities should be. Right. Um, but you know, for the most part, if you're uh, a ten-dollar bottle, is going to be, it's going to be sound, and it, you know, it's, it, it could be in, enjoyable, but it will very rarely be exciting. And if you just want a, a pleasant um, alcohol delivery system. Uh, that that's fine, but if you're interested in something more, some uh, wine that that speaks of a place that has a little bit of excitement to it, um, and you're willing to spend just a, a little bit more money, uh, your pleasure will increase exponentially. Not that much more, which no. is
1: kind of the point and yeah. the
4: experience, like you and, said, and is exponential. In, you know, in this level, you're not getting so many mass-produced wines or. or um, you know, I, I call them processed wines, which is the, uh, you know, the analogy to processed foods. Right. People people who who don't mind eating processed foods won't mind processed wines. But if you are, um, if you care about what you eat, where it came from, how it was made, then I think you should. Um, you might want to devote the same attention to detail with with wine, and right. you, you might agree. spend a little bit more to get your food from a, a farmer's market. Organic, worth a little bit more to, to get your wine from a uh, a producer who is really scrupulous in agriculture and and uh,
1: not manipulating it in in the um, in the winery. I agree. Now we're going to wrap up, but if people did not see the story, they can go online and they could look up that particular article. The twenty dollars, right? Where would they oh, go? Yeah. Well, uh, nytimes.com.
4: Okay, is, um, you know so you're my, starting My place. columns uh, going back forever. It seems right. So
1: if yeah. if you want to read any of Eric's um, work, current column or back, just go to New York Times. Go go to Google. Go to Google. Yeah, <laughs> put in Eric Asimov, twenty dollar bottles of wine. All right, we're gonna wrap up. Um, Doug. If people want to know more about Ingleside Vineyards, where's the best place? Because not everybody lives in Virginia. Not everybody gets by there. But hopefully we peaked a little interest. So if people want to know more about Ingleside, where do they start?
2: I, I would say start with Google. <laughs> start <laughs> with Google? Up. God, that thing's changed, right? Look Damn it. We'll have a nice website that'll get you started, and uh, we'd love to have people come visit. And you have
1: a tasting room and all that, right?
2: Yes. Okay.
1: So go to Ingleside. um, Go to Google. And Courtney, you are in Richmond. Like I said, you're in Urban Cidery. If people want to know more, get more information about...
3: Bluebeastcider.com. Cidery. I knew that. And you can come and visit. We're located in the Scots Edition neighborhood in Richmond. It's alcohol central right now there are 10 producers in the neighborhood breweries wineries cideries meaderies distilleries so park your car and have a good time it's a
1: very i know you moved recently you're in a very cool multi-building yes. space yes and if you can quickly tell me i know you're doing a fundraiser coming up in march yes um to raise money for human trafficking yes the human talk to trafficking me quickly incident. about what
3: yes so um the human trafficking institute helps work with existing justice systems to prosecute and um, put in jail people who are um, breaking the law by asking people to work for little to no money. And we're doing this during Women's History Month because women tend to be the most vulnerable in the hospitality industry and agriculture to that kind of treatment.
1: And when is that?
3: That's March 21st. At? At, at Blue, Blue Bee. Cider, and okay. you can purchase tickets at BlueBeeCider.com. So go
1: to Blue Bee Cider, yes. and you can get more info on the yes. cidery and on that event. Yes. All right, we're going to wrap up. I want to thank Doug Flemmer from Ingleside Vineyards. Um, I want to thank Courtney Maley from Blue Bee Cider. And I want to thank our friend Eric Asimov from The New York Times for joining us on The Grape Nation. We're broadcasting today at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. I also would like to thank our sponsors, Springer Mountain Farms Chicken, which is right behind us, and the smoke's blowing in, and it's hard to miss it. The Big Green Egg, Wisconsin Cheese, and the Julia Child Foundation. We'll be back with more programming.